end of the day, we're kind of being forced, some people much more uncomfortably than others, because they don't even have separate spaces, privacies that some other people are afforded. And a lot of bosses who might have the two houses, six cars, and you know, need to lean in with empathy on others who might not have the same kind of conditions, whether it's marital bliss or a beautiful home with three different rooms that you can hide off in if you need to. This notion of actually work and the personal life have merged in this pandemic. And I think that's a good thing because it's waking people up to the fact that being two different people is bad news. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that is Minter Dial. And Minter's the author of a book titled, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. Now, it's not going to surprise you that I liked Minter's book because I often talk on this show about how being yourself is the key to making you a better seller. In our conversation, we talk about how in the wake of the pandemic, people are rethinking and reconfiguring what's important. And as Minter advocates in his book, it's time for a radically different way to think and act in leadership and in sales, which at heart is fundamentally a leadership activity. Success requires that you be you, that you accept your own vulnerabilities and embrace the messiness that are personal relationships. And the way you lead and the way you sell is at heart about a human-first leadership. So we dig into how our personal and professional worlds all of a sudden even before the pandemic and now after, have become much more intertwined in what that means for how you lead and how you sell. All this and much, much more before we get to Minter, though, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Minter, welcome to the show. Andy, thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. So you're joining us from where today? London, England. Ah, London, England. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we talked a little bit before we got started about uh, you're taking a, a trip. You're actually escaping <laughs> escaping lockdown. That is yeah. the idea, you know? Yeah. That's good. A little Switzerland sounds like a good idea. Now, from reading your book, and we're going to talk about your book, uh, I think it's in your book you talk about it, but it might have been something else I'd read about you. You're, we share something in common as we're both passionate Liverpool football club supporters. Holy smokes. Y'all never walk alone. You never walk alone. So you'll get the white glove treatment for me. Oh, thank you. Show. I mean, yeah. I mean, if you're an Arsenal supporter, Chelsea, Man U, it might be a little different, but, uh, you know. Red since 1972 here. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think. Uh, I became a fan during the Steve McManaman era, oh, so nineties. Nice. Um, we didn't I'm get a lot of we didn't get a lot of you know Premier League then, or you know slightly before Premier League football in uh, in the U.S. at that time. So, but when I saw him, yeah, he was my favorite player at that time. Oh, he got he has a way of running. He had a way of running at people with the ball. Boy, was that sexy. Yeah, there was one particular game match, I can't remember what it was, where he basically went the length of the field, ran through the entire opposing team, well, balled his feet, um, the score goal is, yeah, pretty spectacular. So, well, good, well, we're going to talk about your book. Thank you for joining us. Your book titled, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. 
And I mean, not to simplify things too much, but I mean, you you sort of had in a books or springs from epiphany you had, it sounds like, is uh, very tragic circumstances. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, like everything, there's there there are moments in life that make you step change, but I can't say it was an overnight feeling, but obviously this sure. was sort of the ignition to really get yeah. me on onto a new path. And and in in not in the same order. So like this is a rewriting of history, but in essence what it was was the true beginning of really getting to want to know at the bottom, at the core, who I was. Mm-hmm. And, and until that point, I had basically the young guy, whippersnapper, success-ridden, but big-headed lack mm. of knowledge of really what was important to me at the deepest level. I right. had been lack attached. Right. I had attachment to extrinsic concepts like the business card, the size of the car kind of thing. And the, the week that um, I, was ru- I was running at the time, Redken, which is a hairdressing company mm-hmm. uh, owned by L'Oreal, uh, based in New York. And the tagline was Fifth Avenue, New York City. So everything we did had the DNA, the imprint of Manhattan in it, yellow cabs, mm. iconic landmarks and such. So if you can imagine, I arrived on, on into my office, beautiful office, corner office, overlooking Manhattan uh, on the morning, uh, that Tuesday morning at around about seven o'clock as I was wont. It was a beautiful morning. And, looking south. And I was looking south. And uh, I actually saw the explosion happen in the North Tower with my own eyes. At the World Trade Center in 2011. That's, that's exactly, 2001. 2001. <laughs> yeah. Right. So small details. But um, I called my assistant who had been uh, working there since 1993. And she said, oh, my God, there's a terrorist attack. And anyway, the, the things play out. I have my office filled with 50 people overlooking this, crying already. Then everybody leaves, and I'm back in my office all alone. I remember calling two people, my wife and, and someone in Paris. And then I put that down, and I watched what was happening. And all of a sudden, I spotted a small plane. I was like, oh, I wonder what that is. And it was just curiosity at this point, you know, just didn't really think more of it. And as I got closer to the Twin Towers, I said, oh, it must be a Canadair. It's going to dump water on the fire. That's what there's. That's why it's coming. Phew. Of course, that's not what happened. Anyway, the no. things things what happened there were really the, the reason why it became more than just a, a big deal and, oh, sadness and death and so on, is I really lent into what it was like to have been a captain of a ship at the time of Pearl Harbor. So you're captain of a ship. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the Philippines, as my grandfather was. And at three in the morning, he was woken up by the cook on the USS Napa in Manila Bay. And the cook said, Captain, Captain, we, we've been attacked. And later on that day, he, go, he went back to the logbook of the USS Napa. And in hand, by hand, he wrote, 0340 hours, hostilities with the Japanese Empire started, we were at war. And, and I had been researching this whole thing for 10 years. So it wasn't just a flippant f- experience for me. It was like, oh, my God, this is my moment that my grandfather lived through. I was named after him. And from that mm-hmm. moment, I really I flipped into, I've got to do stuff that matters and that resonates with me in the deepest level. And little by little, I, I, I say little by little because it's not something that happened like this. But that's really the right. moment that got me into this idea of, 
I have to lead myself. In order to do that, I have to know myself. I mean, you were searching for meaning. I mean, I had a big event like that. I think for a lot of us, it was, you know, those events tend to trigger those types of thoughts. It's like, yeah, there's, what are we doing with our time here on Earth? Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, selling shampoos? Um, not important, right? Yeah. Making the numbers? You know, I, I, okay. <laughs> Got to make them, but maybe there are other things which are more important than doing just that. Right. Well, I think we all, at some point, have those thoughts. I mean, I, I used to think about it because I traveled extensively for years internationally, as I'm sure you did as well. And, and yeah, I remember being on a plane flying through a hurricane in Asia, uh, big, you know, 747 bouncing around like you know, a top, thinking, oh my God, if this was to go down, I'd, how stupid, you know, <laughs> oh, I don't know, sales call. <laughs> Who cares, right? right. Uh, it seemed like silly, right? That, that, that would be the, the events that led to one thing to another. And it, it does, you do think, rethink things, I think. It's a reve. It, it, it reminds you yeah. that life is short and that therefore it's more interesting to do things that matter. Plus the real the reality is we all know we have to go p past that last hurdle. And so the, the sooner you get a grip on that, don't wait for a life-changing moment to get on it. That's sort of what my intonation is, is mm -hmm. you can do it without having to have to face death. Because right. it's just a reality. And so my hope is to just prod people or at least nudge people into this idea that life actually is short, do things that matter, which doesn't mean give up numbers and, and being you know, unpragmatic. You've got to still be, right. do the business. But just put things into perspective and try to do things that matter with you personally. Right. I mean, there's sort of this theme throughout the book is, and I think it lends to this, is that we can't be... We can't bifurcate ourselves, right? That we've got this business persona, we've got this personal persona, and if they're not aligned, that's problematic. And I, and I see that all the time, and certainly in sales, and primarily a sales audience listening to this show is, is yeah, a lot of people think that performing sales, they have to put on an act. You know, they have to be something that's uh, sort of not aligned with who they are as a person, and that has huge impacts on their ability to perform because individual sellers in many respects they are leaders right i mean you're you're trying to inspire a buyer to take a journey with you much as leaders inspire employees to take journeys with them a journey of change and yeah if you're and i hate i, I know the term authenticity is overused and we'll sort of talk about that but i mean if 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 it's not you if it's uh, an act that's going to show well, buyer. you're absolutely right. I mean, basically, a salesperson has that autonomy. So with that independence comes leadership because you're leading you and your squad of, you know, your, your clients. And, and so you have the autonomy to go to places and, and you're in the fire. You're in the moment doing it. So you have mm -hmm. to bring those people along. The, the point that I often hear is, well, it's easier if you believe in the product and service, right? If you believe in what you're selling, it's easier. If you don't believe in it, you're going to be called out for a bunch of BS. Mm. But the issue is, what do you believe in? Because you can be tempted, oh, it's a great product. The product is really great. I believe in the product. It's a perfect tool to do damage, for example. It's, for, it's the best right. tool. I believe in its abilities to do damage. 
But how does that make you feel? So the point is linking in that belief actually with who you are and what do you stand for. And doing that work will make you that for a much more solid, stronger salesperson. Because you're actually tapping into your person, your personality, what you right. believe personally. Well, I think that's right. Is you have to, I think first and foremost, you have to believe in yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And to your point throughout the book, and we'll get into the details of that, is, is yeah, you have to understand what are the things that you believe in. Um, if you want to exercise that autonomy, and I, th- I think this is one of the problems, and again, we'll get into a little bit later, is, is in sales these days is, is there's a huge stress and emphasis on conformity. And a lot of the autonomy that traditionally sellers might have enjoyed has sort of gone by the wayside because now through technology, you have got all this transparency into what's taking place at every step of the selling process um, that we've got this this push-pull. I think increasingly sellers feel like they're being pushed to sell in a way that's not aligned with who they are personally. And since I do believe yeah, as individual sellers fundamentally is a leadership position, I, that's problematic. I think we're seeing that play out in you know, mental health issues and burnout and other things in the sales world. It's deeply unhealthy because at the end of the day, you're making a gap by, by putting on the professional mask, mm-hmm. touting or, or playing to the rules that are set. But you're, the gap between those rules, the way you are being told to operate and who you are, right. that over time that creates tremendous entropy. And, and to compensate for that, you get more tired. You, well, I'll just have another cup of coffee. It's okay. I'm excited right. because I got a big bonus at the end of the month. I'm excited. But what you're doing is you're drawing down on your real energy. And the only way to have that real energy lost over time, because you and I know that it's a long game, life. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least it's a long, it's, it's more like a marathon. Of course, life is short, but in the, in the, in the right. act of, living these lives, it's easy to lose your energy. The one that fires yeah. inside. Yeah. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that this, this not getting too far off track here, but to that point you just made is that, yeah, you have to, I look at my career. I mean, I'm 40 years into my career more and yet I'm still you know, excited about this whole field and, you know, produced 900 episodes of this podcast plus and just submitted a new manuscript for a book and from a third book. And it's like, yeah, I always feel like, yeah, I, I, I grabbed the autonomy, right? I, I sort of demanded that autonomy and I did through performance. I mean, that was, you do have to perform if you're going to ask, make that ask. Sure. But yeah, I always felt like I was able to do things my way. And not that I wasn't a team player and you know, lots of people contributed to my success and, and we worked as teams, but I felt like I sort of had a, a vision of what it was like, the, the way I wanted to operate. And there was just, I couldn't put that mask on. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't yeah. be that person that, that our training, certainly in the era that I came into sales, they, you definitely were trained to put a mask on. I mean, you had to be that buoyant, joyous Hey, you know, hail fellow, well met type thing. Yeah, I don't want to hear any. Oh, you, I've had a bad day thing, or you know, it's always got to be good. Yeah, you always had to be on top of it. I mean, so 
this idea of, of that you're talking about is that you, and I emphasize in all caps, uppercase letters, uh, you lead and who the you is, is you write that you think that that the pandemic and COVID has encouraged more people to sort of come to grips with this idea that that there needs to be sort of a unified person leading as opposed to having this professional and personal gap as you talk about. Well, to start with, I even thought of another title, which is You Lead You. Actually, that's really right. what this is about. Because if you can lead mm-hmm. you, then you'll be better at leading others, assuming you even have a team. Right. And the reality of this pandemic has done two things. First of all, the existential crisis. We're talking about death all the time. And so that naturally feeds into our limbic system, the fear of what's going on. And mm-hmm. and like those who watched or experienced 9-11, oh my God, life is short. What am I, Can I do stuff that matters? And, and so there people are then taking the time, to, well, they have more time, a lot of people, and they are sitting in their beds thinking, hmm, what am I going to get out of bed for to walk over to my desk two and a half meters away to do what? To do a bunch of Zoom calls. What is the importance of all this? And, and so there's this notion of getting into that story of what matters. Secondly, when you get to the Zoom, your home is on display. So we're no longer donning a tie, putting on a mask, and going to work. Mm-hmm. Although that could have a scary echo. In, in, another, in another world, right? But we, right. we have, we're, we're basically going from our bed to our home with the cat, the kid who screams, and the sounds outside your window. And, and so actually, in the end of the day, we're, we're kind of being forced, some people much more uncomfortably than others, because they don't yeah. even have separate spaces, privacies that some other people are afforded. And a lot of bosses who might have the two houses, six cars, and, you know, whatever, need to lean in with empathy on others who might not have the same kind of conditions, whether it's marital bliss or a beautiful home with three different rooms that you can hide off in if you need to. And and so this notion of actually work and personal life are have merged in this pandemic. And I think that's a good thing because it's waking people up to the fact that being two different people is bad news. I wonder how many leaders, though, and I'm interested in your assessment of this, are really sort of embracing that. And because, yeah, I find that that in interviewing hundreds of people a year for this this podcast and many leaders, and over the last 12 months, and also you know, reading lots of things on LinkedIn, um, how initially there was sort of this, oh, yeah, 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 we need to be much more empathetic now, you know, back in March, April, a year ago. Uh, you know, as if it was like a revelation, oh, we need to lead with empathy. Um, but a lot of that's just gone away. Well, I, And I wonder to what degree leaders and corporations have really embraced this change. I think, I think the individual contributors certainly have to a greater degree because it seems like more of a reality to them. But I just wonder how much the leaders really have because there's very little talk about it. I, I tend to agree. I think that right now, we, there, there are several things that are going against us. The first is general fatigue. And when, mm-hmm. you're, when you're not taking care of your own energies, how can you be good with others? And so a lot of bosses, I believe, are absolutely 
fatigued by what's going on. They, they've been taught mm. for 40 years to say, I'm always good. All right, so come on. Right. We got to do this. I got this. I got this. Yeah, we got this. Yeah, right. so, but they, they've actually not lent into who they are and what they feel. And so they're actually running on fumes. And, and so they, get, they start losing the plot with regard to mm-hmm. the, the patience, the generosity, right. the ear to actually hear other people. Because actually we're all on this boat together. But because they're not actually right. leaning into it, then they're, they're not going to have that graciousness to listen to other people's stories and connect in. Because you have to operate differently when all you have is this screen. The second thing is a stress of performance. Because there are, albeit some companies that are doing well, but I think as we come out of mm-hmm. this, despite packages, which, you know, obviously some countries have more than others, that the government might be laying out, I think a lot of people are going to be under a lot of stress, not just from because of change, but actually because of the numbers. And as soon as you start sure. throwing in stress, then you're going to start doing shortcuts and you're going to forget to take the effort which is what it takes to listen to people. It takes effort to be polite. It takes effort to have empathy. And if you don't know why yeah. you're doing it, then you just cut short corners and you just go, come on, come on, come on, shape up, come on. And it comes too quickly. Yeah, well, I mean, you, right. I mean, you, you refer that in the book, you know, about companies that, uh, you know, fall back too quickly into this whole idea of the sort of rational and financial drivers of the business will be the ones that, that struggle. But I'm already seeing indications of companies are defaulting to that. I mean, an example in the sales world is uh, somebody had done a survey, I don't know, last fall, maybe last summer, and the results came out in the fall, that you know, CFOs of large corporations have seen these tremendous sort of savings on travel and entertainment for their sales teams because you know they haven't been on the field, they haven't been making sales calls. And they're like, great. You know, let's let's cut budgets, and it's like, why, right? I mean, <laughs> what makes you think that's going to work? What makes you think what was happening this last year when everybody was pulling together was going to be sustainable? Uh, and to your point about you know, not listening to customers. Oh God, yeah. Well, I mean, the thing is, we yeah, but then office budget, we yeah. all have issues, and and so really, at the end of the day, the the issues of the pandemic per se. Do you have a vaccination? Are you wearing masks? And do you know anybody who's sick? These are these are real issues that anybody can be facing, and at some level, mm-hmm. it's it's not possible to gloss over them. So we, we what I think we really need. So I was mentioning offices. We have to understand that uh, not having offices is not just a cost saving. It's a total shift in mindset. Mm-hmm. So if we're focusing just on the cost saving and we're not doing the adjustments necessary to make remote work work, which means not operating in the same way, really right. leaning into how do you build trust because that just doesn't happen at a you know, flick of the wrist. Right. And we're going we're gonna to need to ad- adapt to the way we work. So we can't just have back-to-back meetings like we always do. Oh, it's really efficient. Yeah, but people actually need to pee. Mm-hmm. People need to take a break. So right. are, are you are you enforcing that sort of maximum? You know, come on, we've got to do this. We got to bre- break it in, get the month in. Whereas this is a lot. You've you got to think long term as well. And what is what is the legacy you want to be creating as a leader? Do you want to just be the guy who makes the number, or do you want to be a guy or a woman who's able to be noble and 
pull up everybody and make it bigger. And, and in sales in particular, it's so easy to get reduced down to the numbers, mm-hmm. the, the bonuses, the numbers you got to reach, the things you got to take, the boxes, the processes and all that. Oh, that. And, in, and, in, and instead focus on what is the purpose of your organization? Are, is everybody in your sales team understanding how your company, your services or products, whatever they are, are making the world or some community a better place? Because the, everyone started off from that position. So if, if you can get, you mobilize your sales team to, do, to know that it's not just about bringing the number, but doing something of a greater magnitude, it doesn't have to be like Mother Teresa-like, but just something that's bigger than just getting in the number and making the shareholder happy, then it's, it's kind of a mechanical process of burning out. Because you, otherwise, it's just a sales team. Because what happens in January next year, you have to be January of this year. And it, yeah. it's just an ongoing. It was a bad month. You get a better comparison. But then that's just the only race in town. Well, I think that's it's such a great point. Because I think there's so many companies that, that and the people within the company that can't clearly express what that bigger purpose is. And oh and it comes across, it's part of your messaging. It's part of the branding. You talk about branding in the book, somewhat personal, the importance of personal branding, which I want to get to. But but this is this is part of the branding. Yeah. And it's a responsibility of the, of marketers to help understand what that brand's about and work with the sales team to understand it to express it. And, and then we were talking about that sort of notion of process and the homogeneity, homogenization mm-hmm. of the sales team. I, right. I think it's very appropriate to think of this notion of the paradox between belonging to a tribe, so like a right. team, where you wear right. a uniform, right. but allowing the expression of the individual. That's a really important paradox that we should be allowing for. Yeah, and yeah, it's, I think that's your paradox number one of your four paradoxes of leadership is need to belong yet be different. But that's that's so hard these days for managers uh, to do. And I, I, and I think part of it is because we've become increasingly driven by the KPIs and by the metrics. And people operate from a sense of fear. And it's hard to say, look, I'm going to enable... Jennifer to you know, express herself, to do her thing, to give her this autonomy that, you know, the same metrics we expect everybody else, we're not going to expect of Jennifer because maybe she's going to perform. And I find managers find that extremely difficult because it's different, right? They, they got the numbers. I can look at the metrics. I can take comfort in the metrics. Jennifer's not making enough calls. Doesn't matter if she's selling enough. Right. I mean, I've had people come on the show and talk about, well, you've got somebody who's a top performer, but they're not, you know, hitting the activity metrics that you put as a standard, then they should get rid of them because they're not a culture fit. And it's like, well, what is your culture at that point then? If you can't embrace people operating autonomously to achieve the the outcomes that you want, yeah, why what what sort of organization do you have at that point? Well, clearly there need to be some processes and rules, obviously, sure. ethics and so on. But uh, the, the, the issue is that this is a long-term adjustment. You don't do this overnight. And if you haven't hired for the attitudes in the first place and you've inherited a team that is 
not of the ilk and, and the variety that you want. You can't just sort of fire them all and or get them all to change overnight. It's a, it's a long-term thing. So if you're in that position, then what you're going to need to do is understand what is the story, start figuring out what type of behaviors, language are going to make your tribe work, because you need to make it work, but also make them feel that they belong. And then establish the parameters and the freedoms, the agency, to allow them, you know, so ethics, the way we rule is our governance is this way. We, we, we consider this inappropriate, but anything right. underneath that is good. So yours to invite freedom of creativity, initiative, and so on. Well, you use an interesting phrase in the book, which I paste, cut and pasted up, <laughs> probably go on a social post of mine at some point is, is you said there's no identity without differentiation. And yeah, we're not. We're not trying to make everybody be the same as everybody else. I think, though, there are some managers that, you know, there's tools that exist that you can sort of do, try to do that. Uh, and they take some comfort because I think it's easy just to have a cookie-cutter approach to this where, to your point throughout the book, is is that increasingly the the buying experience, the customer experience, is based on how they experience the individual, not the brand identity of the company. Well, there's an enormous amount of mediocrity. And and within mediocrity is average, and, and average is not stand out. And so if you aren't prepared to stand out, and you, you need to push that envelope further in order to be able to push and hopefully allow more people in your organization to re-present your point of difference then you are bound to fall back into, oh, I need to sell everything to everybody because I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm so inclusive that I want any customer. Well, right. that's just not going to, that's just not a good place to be. No. It might sound nice, but you, you, the, the, the problem with belonging is it also means I don't belong or you don't belong. There is, there is, a, there is a border. If, mm-hmm. if, if you and I are, are members, are, are fans of a, the, the great football team, the right football team, well, the other ones are the wrong football teams, the less. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right? So Manchester United right. is not a, a topic of conversation. Liverpool is. So that means yeah. that I am being exclusive, exclusionary, therefore, mm-hmm. at some level. I mean, I have Man U fans, right? So, but that's okay. I'll survive. But we have within that belongingness an exclusion. And, and that's somehow our challenge. Because if I, if I belong to this perimetered group, then I don't want these clients. Oh, but, you know, they could be a $100,000 contract. Right, but then you're diluting you, what you stand for. And, and right. it's to have those strong arguments. So this is not something you do overnight because you're not going to jettison all the clients that don't stand for what you want to stand for, but you move towards it. But you can't do it if you don't know what you stand for in the first place. Yeah, and you talk, and you talk about this in the book. You talk, refer to it as a, sort of a, a North Star. Um, so how, does, how do leaders, we'll start with leaders, but I mean, how do you, how do you define you know, this North Star? Because it, it speaks to a little bit what we talked about before is, is that – you know, in the absence of this North Star, you're just sort of flailing mm. and will expend all of your energy. You will burn out. You will not achieve what you want to achieve. So, the, 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 so the, really, the, the first and most important North Star is your own personal one. 
because anyway, you lead you. So mm -hmm. what does this mean? Well, many people might have come across the term, but 99% of people do not have what's necessary, which is a precise personal North Star. It's generally a North Star that's a little bit vague. And, and by having a vague one, well, that's great. Yeah, I generally know this is what I want. I want to be happy. I want to be healthy. I want to have family mm -hmm. or these, these generic ideas. Financial security, right? For example. But what we need to have is a much more precise one. That doesn't have to be the exact north, but a precise one to you that speaks to you. So that what does that mean? Well, that means that I have a vision of the person I want to be in a far distant future. Or I mean, so 20 years from now or 15 years from now, whatever, who do I want to be? And, and in that, it's not what do I want to do? It's who do I want to mm -hmm. be? And if you need to zero in on that with like, and a you know like <laughs> tenacity in order to focus on that and not slip into well I I want to you know run a company oh. right why do you want to run because I want to be this type of person and then the second thing is step into your values and the thing about values there are roughly seventy five of them it's very simple and easy to want to like all of them oh I like integrity oh I'm into love family. Uh, innovation. There's so many. I mean, who wouldn't want all of them? Mm -hmm. But the hard work, like strategy, is actually being selective. And then once you've got your real values, then you need to break them down into a code so that you understand that these are the type of behaviors right. that represent these values. So when you do that for yourself as a leader, then you can start thinking about the same thing in a, in a strong way with regard to your company or the brand you're running. Because all of a sudden, it sort of now resonates within you. Because what you want mm -hmm. is that resonance to happen in other people, that vibration. That so it, so every, the CFO included gets that feeling. And then when you have yeah, that, then you have a, a real brand that's going to have lungs and air and organic feelings and excitement. And that's where you really start get pulsating and make a long-term durable brand. Right, and to the point I was making before is, is, in the eyes of your buyer, individual seller that's working on their account, they represent that brand. I mean, research has shown that you know, in excess of fifty percent of a buyer's purchase decision is based on their experience with the seller in this in this process. So, to the degree that that uh, the leaders need to have the north star. Sellers do as well. Absolutely. Well, right. I mean, one hundred percent. It's the same thing. But if you're a leader, like a sales manager, and you have five people in your team, mm -hmm. you need to do it on yourself first. Yes. Don't start preaching about it unless you've done the work yourself. So this is a little right. bit of a longer term game. And the issue is, so many of us kind of rationalize that we think we got it. You know, because we're intelligent people, where we can come up with the words, especially salespeople. Right. You know, I got the, I got the chatch, but. Actually, what it takes is leaning into, for example, your imperfections, mm -hmm. your dark side. And I don't then say you need to be transparent about that, but you need to be realistic about it to yourself. And once you have that self-awareness and your honesty with what you are as an individual, then things start becoming a little bit more, less of a battle. 
so many of these bad managers mm -hmm. and people who don't know how to lead is that they, they have some unresolved issues and they start taking it out on people. They're not prepared to listen and learn because they, they've got this other issue, which is breaking them right. down and making them feel less human or less generous with others. Yeah, well, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think when we one of the big issues in in sales these days is is and it's been for some time, but it, it's going through its period of of lots of attention is lack of coaching, right? Is is generally we do a relatively poor job of training our salespeople. It's not the content; it's sort of the methods we use to train them. But what we find is really effective to help perform or improve performance is effective coaching, right? The one on one time. And yet for way too many managers, that one-on-one -on -one time is all about being more directive, right? So what are you doing on this deal? What are you doing on this? As opposed to what do you want to achieve, right? What are the things that are most important to you? How can I, what's the fastest way I can help you achieve what you want to achieve? That part still is, is largely missing. And yeah, it, it all... It all works together, right? If that's missing, then you wonder, well, why? Why are salespeople churning so fast on their jobs, right? Why are they, you know, in the Valley, it's like 14 months, you know, turnover. Sales leaders, it's like 18 months now, average tenure. I mean, not the only reasons, but this is certainly part of it that contributes to it. I totally agree. And just like, I mean, I talk about the inside-out model. You ought to consider treating your employees, your teams, in the way that you'd like to treat your customers. So, I mean, the, the next step is actually also, as a salesperson, say to the client, hey, what are your dreams? What are your aspirations? Mm -hmm. How can I solve mm -hmm. and participate in that? Oh, and by the way, after that, talk to you about flogging your product or service. But focus, <laughs> yes. right? I mean, obviously, you won't, I use a, a derogatory term, but if you can get to the bigger picture, and, and find how you can be of service to solve mm -hmm. their problems within a realistic scope. I mean, when, when I ran Redkin, I, I, I just, it was so extraordinary to have that opening because, I mean, I, I didn't, it was a gift to me. But when you understand that the role of Redkin that we gave ourselves, our North Star, was to help mm -hmm. our hairdressers, so B2B, earn a better living, right. live a better life. Okay. So make money because 90% of hairdressers basically run at zero or, or loss. So it's good if mm -hmm. our customers survive. Because if you don't survive, right. you got nothing to live for. There's, not, there's no purpose to a bankruptcy. I mean, there is, but <laughs> not a good one. And then, and then the second thing is live a better life. Because why is that important? Because hairdressers are an essential element, piece of the community. And the, and the 1,200 customers on general that they, they serve, they are making those 1,200 people feel better. So our role mm -hmm. was to help them feel better. And there's a big difference between self-confidence and self-belief. And the things that we tried to focus on at Redken was that if you have stronger self-belief, then you're going to feel better about yourself. You're going to live a better life. Having the competency is how you get to earn more money generally. Right. But the belief is how you live a better life. How did you help then your customers 
achieve those two things. Right. Well, uh, this, I mean, there's a whole strategy to this, but the key component sure. of it, well, first of all, it was a, it was an entire company-wide concept. We over-invested by three times what anyone else in the industry was doing in what was called education. So the education is how to help a hairdresser do their business. Mm-hmm. And, and whereas the standard was one-third less in terms of education, where they would focus generally on how to make the products well used. Because right. if, you, if you screw up a hair color, that's bad news. But how about, right. how about you make the person who's doing the hair color feel better about themselves? So we would introduce things which are far more personal. Like, you know, what's your, your financial hygiene? Are, are you managing your own personal bank accounts well? Because mm-hmm. if you're worried about the car- credit card debts you have while you're cutting someone else's hair, how, how does that make you feel good? Yeah, huge stressor. Right? Amongst, right? amongst others. And so we, would, we right. would allow ourselves to go in and talk at a personal level. So in order for that to happen, you need to create a whole level of trust for them to share with you what their real issues are. And then once you have that trust, mm-hmm. then you got to come to the table with things that can help them. And I mean, we had this marvelous lady. Uh, she still actually works in part for Redken. Her name was Anne Mincy. And uh, when I was working at, at Redken and uh, running it, she wasn't officially called this because people at L'Oreal would have looked at me a little bit crazy, but we called her the unofficial director of love. So her role mm-hmm. was to give love out. How beautiful is that? Modeling love in a corporate environment. You're probably thinking inside, if you're listening to this, mentor, this guy is seriously crazy. Well, it was <laughs> seriously beautiful. Whenever you were right. in Anne's presence, you felt like the single most important person in the world. And, and she made me do this. She made everybody she was with do this. And when, and when that happens, it starts rubbing off into other people. So you had little mini directors of love, if you will, after that, you know, other people mm-hmm. who get into that spirit. And, and so th- these are the different types of things. That you, but this, I can't give an ROI on this stuff. If I'm down to a metric, what is this? And, and so many of these soft skills are non-measurable, like empathy. You can't measure empathy. Yeah, I, I, somebody told me a while ago, I adopted this, this term, is, is we need to stop calling them soft skills, call them power yeah, skills. Yeah, totally. Because they really are the power behind the connection you can make with somebody and the impact you can have on someone. Uh, I didn't mean to interrupt your throw, <laughs> flow of thought, but I just thought you might enjoy that because I think this person was absolutely right. Well, but my book before this was called Artificial Empathy. Yes. And so I've been, I've been very much invested in this concept of empathy. And uh, so I, I even have um, this, these two drawings in it of the superpowers of empathy and, and how they really are supremely powerful. Yet they are, as we said at the very beginning, everybody knows it, but actually we don't do it. And the issue with it is it has to be very intentional and it takes time and so you need to plan it out to listen to people and ask people open questions and have the ear to listen deeply. Yeah, we've tried to package up empathy, right? Yeah. I mean, in marketing these days, you know, we're, and it's useful to have a persona, a description of your customer, but unfortunately, it's oftentimes used as, oh, I understand this person now, right? I, <laughs> exactly. I've got empathy for them because I've read this this two paragraph description of who they are and what they care about and, and what they, 
what's important to them and so on. And yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I hadn't read that book of yours, but I suspect you're sort of on the same path as, is, yeah, empathy is hugely important, but I think that everybody sort of defaults as compassionate empathy as opposed to the cognitive empathy, mm. which is, absolutely. I can certainly feel, now if you read Paul Bloom's book against empathy, but, um, I went to Yale. Yeah. Okay. So is, yeah, it's, it's not enough just to feel what they feel. You need to understand why people feel the way they do. To your point, you need to listen, you need to ask open-ended questions. You need to understand. Uh, and then, yeah, you can communicate that, that love as, as Anne was doing. Well, I love you how you talked about the, uh, what is it like the TTB, the tick the box type of empathy, put it in a package. Mm-hmm. And actually what I wanted to do with artificial empathy was tap into this a desire. Oh, great. You know what, Andy? All we need to do is buddy make the AI empathic and then we're good. We're <laughs> off the hook. <laughs> yeah. Good luck on that, by the way. But yes. So uh, what I did is I, I imagined that thought and then I, I wind back and say, actually, it doesn't work that way. You need to be inside out empathic. You need to treat your salespeople with empathy. Understand them. What's their personal story? What are their personal ambitions? And then allow for that to happen. So they they might even stay for more than 14 months because if you're allowing them to achieve their life ambition, Mm -hmm. well, of course they're going to stay with you. (laughs) Yes. And by the way, if they then can, once they feel that for real, Mm -hmm. It can't be some sort of ingenious little ploy, you know, two-week ploy. It's got to be seeping into the entire organization. Then they can deploy empathy to their customers. Right. And, and then, then when, the, when the customer has something to deal with, when the salesperson goes back to it's an issue that maybe he or she couldn't resolve at the coal mine, but they can go back and talk to somebody. Hey, listen, we need to adapt something. And the marketing person says, oh, okay, that's cool. Instead of uh, not possible. Ne possible, mm-hmm. as the Russians might say. Right. Yeah, it's, it's um, what I was thinking about this the other day in context of another conversation I was preparing for is, is this whole idea of understanding driving empathy is, is do you remember... Um, Harvey McKay wrote books Swimming with Sharks and famous New York Times bestselling author. Uh, I think he's 92 years old now. I, I had him on the show a couple years ago. Still, nice. I think he was 89 or 90 at the time, still sharp as a tack. And, but he talked about in his business and that he ran uh, outside his consulting business that ran an envelope company. Uh, but his salespeople, they required them to had a a list of 65 things they needed to understand about their their buyers. And it was, yeah, it wasn't all just what business needs. Is yeah, what are they like as a person? You know, how would you describe them? What's what's important to them? Some deeply personal stuff as well. And I thought, yeah, you know, with that type of framework, 65 things, you understand what their concerns are. You understand why they feel the way they do, why they're... And I was thinking this in terms of our conversation today, it's like, yeah, as a leader, how many things should you know about your employees? Right? 
Are there? It's awfully 60, complicated because are there sixty-five some, topics oh. you should know the answer to? Um, that's possibly true. Oh sure. I mean the the challenge is knowing where the cursor needs to go. Right. Because we have I like to put down these three parts to us. The professional part, like you you have the competencies to do mm -hmm. this, are you an extrins are you an ex, you know, extrovert or an introvert right. or whatever. Like competencies professional. And then you have the intimate side of you, your private side, your secret guard. <clears throat> Yeah. And we all have that, and we right. need to have that. And yes. I like to say there is beauty in mystery, and 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 protect that. That's great. But then you have this whole thing in the middle, which is the personal stuff. What team you support? What uh, what's important to you? Your values, your ethics, right? These mm -hmm. are these are the of the domain that personal, and the and the, and in order to get those sixty five points, you have to obviously be plowing down into the personal side. The question is, how far do you go? And in a world where we have so many HR issues and boundaries and lawsuits right. that can come up and bite you in the bum, you, you need to be careful about that. You need to be exactly. like back in my days, we, we had a policy, Andy, of allowing hugs. And, but not just like tap, tap, you know, hug, hug stuff. Seven second hugs. <laughs> Was this like part of a, a sales meeting or something? Every every type of meeting we right. we I mean obviously we didn't do it all the time but it was part of our signature way of greeting people mm -hmm. and I'll tell you why man to man woman to woman and man to woman mm -hmm. because when you do long hugs it it turns out that your hearts start to synchronize Thanks. right well if that's not a personal idea then you know so you but you can't just do that overnight you don't just you know, invent this because a you'll have lots of lawsuits come in on you, and p you may not have people who are comfortable doing that. So you need to in you know craft this into your program. If you're if you're a legacy company, you've been around for twenty years, and all of a sudden you you come in the boss say, "I wanted to start hugging." Well, good luck. Right, as you said, lots of uh, lots of meetings with HR about that. <laughs> yep, uh, I'm gonna move away from there. Move away, yeah, son. Right. Yeah, I'm not comfortable with that. Well, the last thing I just want to talk about, though, too, is, is um, your third paradox, which was we must reconcile the quest for order and the presence of chaos. And interesting, you'd, you'd written that that you know change is an instigator of disorder, and I sort of look at it as the other way is true as well, right? Disorder is an instigator of change itself, hmm. uh, and they both work. Right, the instigators of change, but I'm yeah, feels right. this idea of chaos is is yeah. You know, I think one of the things we're trying to do with technology is we're trying to tamp down the chaos. Right, we're trying to say everything can be driven by data or informed by data, and it's very orderly. And and the fact is, it's not. And what we're doing with that isn't making it more orderly. And you just sort of. Um, Looting yourself if you think it does. I mean, this idea that for me with chaos, and I've heard this early in my career, listening to a, a lecturer talk about the key skill he believed for success in the world, in life, not just business, was a tolerance of ambiguity. Mm. And you really need to have that in the midst of of chaos. And I th I think 
people are running into trouble because they're trying to make the world more orderly than it really is. And maybe this has gone on forever with mankind. It probably has. But it seems to be more acute now. But one of the things that's happening is that it's, at least in sales, what I see is, we this talk about a gap, is this widening gap between the buyer's behaviors in terms of how they gather information to make decisions and what the process that sellers use. Whereas sellers want to think it's things are very sort of serial, orderly process. And uh, Gartner done research a few years ago about buyer's process. And it's this, what I call it the spaghetti, spaghetti diagram, because it's this hugely confusing mass of, of uh, trails and flows and processes and recursive events and so on going on that was the epitome of chaos. All you need to do is talk to a neuroscientist. Um, yeah. I mean, you look at the way the brain functions. So the, the notion of ambiguity for me, Andy, speaks more to the notion of paradoxes and, and how we have to live without comfort. We, we have to live between mm -hmm. opposing forces, uh, which can be marketing and sales, of course. But in general, this notion <laughs> of ambiguity, we, we're never going to know everything. And, right. and for me, uh, the way I've explored this, because I, I certainly haven't come up with all of these thoughts, but the, the, it has been man's ambition, very much a, a masculine ambition to want to codify the world, give everything a label, put it in a box, and that renders it safe. And then all of a sudden, you've got this sort of individual that wants to say, no, but I'm different. Because it's back to the, the notion of, of belonging and feeling different, mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. You can codify everybody, but if everybody in the army is the same, then uh, every, there's nobody place for the personality, and you're going to lobotomize everybody. So things like creativity, intuition, imagination, emotions, relationship, and then further on into things like empathy. It's messy. Mm -hmm. And and there is we, we need to allow for that. That is part of our condition. I mean, I've always I've I've looked at astrophysics from an arm's length because I'm a literary guy, so I have I'm absolutely I, I think I got a C in physics, but mm -hmm. in astrophysics, this notion of chaos is a part of it. And so what like serendipity in our lives. We need to allow for chaos. And so yep. pra practically speaking, what does that mean? That it means you kind of need to plan for the unexpected. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Because the unexpected is kind of expectedly going to arrive. Like shit happens. Mm -hmm. A traffic jam that you didn't plan can happen. An accident. You know, shit does happen. So this yep. is sort of like the more prosaic version of chaos. And therefore, you need to allow for it. So if you don't allow for serendipity, that means you're just rushing from one meeting to another. No airtime for your brain to just think differently, you know, okay. the equivalent of a shower, if you will. Then you're not going to have, you're going to have very average thoughts. So you need to allow for the chaos. And that means knowing that you have kind of processes, but you also have gaps that allow for agency. And exactly, which I think is the critical part. At least in sales, is yeah, I don't look at sales as this linear process as much as it's a collection of moments. And 
The moments may be unexpected. The moments may not happen at the time you expect. But if you're prepared for the unexpected, as you talked about, you're going to seize the opportunity more effectively than anybody else. Another thing that's important about, especially, it was certainly the way I lived sales, was that you are operating. We used to, I worked in the hairdressing industry, so you had the binome of the salesperson with the educator. Mm-hmm. And that was a super important one. The other persons are, that are important were customer service, mm-hmm. right? And so it needs to be service. You need to have an organizational process to allow for this. So, because if you have, you know, comments like, oh, you know, Andy, he's the, you know, the firecracker. He's always doing this, breaking the rules. That kind of comment's not really wholesome. So mm-hmm. you need to, you have to be able to allow for a, a system-wide, where customer service also understands what the purpose of the organization is. The educator mm-hmm. is doing it the same way. And you also then you have to unify and be smart about how you set down objectives and and remuneration because we also do operate that way. That's a very human instinct. So right. you need to be smart about how you set the objectives team-wide. And I mean, so it's not easy to do it. But if you can make sure that everybody's tapped into the story, the purpose of your organization, from customer service to CEO to CFO, right. HR, and so on, then you have a better chance of making super happy customers. Love it. All right. Well, Minter, unfortunately, we've run out of time. But uh, this has been great. Thank you very much for joining me. It's been my great pleasure, Andy. I appreciate it very much. I love the fact that we can connect from San Diego to London and like the Reds. <laughs> and like the Reds. Unfortunately, they're not doing very well this year, but nope. uh, they've been hampered by injuries like no one else has been. So yeah, I agree lose with that. Your, lose the core of your defense. and. Uh, but that's our journey. You know, we j- that's, that's our, our journey. journey yes. Yeah, because if yeah. we just wanted to, you know, always like the best team, then that says legions about you. That's right. So, all right. Well, Minter, thank you so much. And if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to connect with you? Well, I, uh, I have a Google-friendly name, MinterDial.com, and I'm on where I blog, and I have a podcast, Minter Dialogue, and otherwise I have a oh, M. clever. Like that? Um, yeah. And I have um, M. Dial, M-D-I-A-L, on various social channels, and um, love to connect. All right. Minter, thank you so very much. Thank you, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm ever so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Minter Dial, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, well, we'd appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this episode is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much, as always, for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.